Hello and welcome to the Safe Food Podcast. I'm Dr. Aileen McGloin, Director of Marketing and Communications at Safe Food, an oil and body promoting food safety and healthy eating. Safe Food is one of six North-South bodies born out of the Good Friday Agreement, so developing partnerships across the food and nutrition sector and with government agencies is a big part of our job. In nutrition, our role is to carry out research, develop educational tools and run public awareness campaigns. You may know us from our START campaign, Promoting Healthy Weights for Children, or our research revealing the real nutritional content of foods like energy drinks and protein snacks. We also run and sponsor conferences and events so that professionals and thought leaders can share their research and knowledge. In this nutrition podcast series, we'll be hearing from leading experts on issues such as social prescribing, obesity, particularly in relation to children and food poverty, and community food initiatives. In this episode, we are joined by Margaret O'Neill of the Health Service Executive and Tony Doherty of Social Prescribing Network Ireland to explain how social prescribing can change the way we provide healthcare. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks, Eddie. You're welcome. I think I'll start by asking you a question, Tony. Uh, just for our listeners, could you explain social prescribing and how it helps patients? Yeah, social prescribing is a, is a simple mechanism that uh, is often used more and more nowadays uh, between GPs, uh, their patients, and the communities in which they come from. And what, what GPs have been saying for a long number of years is uh, they get all sorts of people presenting uh, to them with a whole variety of, of um, ailments and, and issues and, and, and so on. And while GPs are, are good at curing um, conditions, and that's, that's, what they're, that's what they're paid to do, that's what they're trained to do, um, they are also presented with a whole range of social and psychosocial issues that are more to do with the wider determinants of, of, of health uh, and not necessarily medical issues. It can be a combination of both. But what, what would have happened in the past is that the patient would have come back a few times with their issues and, uh, and may well end up being medicated uh, because their condition had had worsened, whereas social prescribing is a in a in a sense is an is an upstreaming uh, mechanism for GPs and others to refer patients uh, through a social prescriber to um, things that happen within their community, and which they're not part of. So, for instance, if if you're suffering from loneliness, social isolation. Um, your mental health mightn't be that good and you're going to your GP your GP can say well I think what's going on here is, is that you're not that well connected to things that are happening in your community and would you like me to refer you to a social prescriber uh, who may be able to talk to you about what you might want to do with your life so it can become a life changing uh, conversation and if they agree the, the, the doctor will provide the patient's information to a social prescriber. The social prescriber can be based in the practice or they can be based in the community. Either way, they will have access to a network of community assets and organizations, 
projects and programs, uh, and they will chat to the uh, to the patient, probably in their own home, or in a community center or a cafe or whatever, and they will help them work out uh, what's what what matters to them, as distinct from what's the matter with them. Uh, so it's trying to switch the psychology a bit uh, from looking at this from a a sort of negative perspective as in what's wrong mm-hmm. um, to what's what, what matters to you what what would you like to do and that, that eventually what what the conversation becomes so the, the social prescriber will be well aware of what is happening within their community uh, will be very conversant about the various projects that exist and who who would be best suited and who the person would be best suited to link up with so they could be sent for instance to a walking club or a flower arranging or god forbid line dancing <laughs> uh, which already exists in their own community it's just that they're not part of it mm-hmm. and they don't know about it so the key thing is the how best they link them link them up is this something it's it seems such a perfect solution is this something that um healthcare workers health professionals have been doing anyway without this the kind of structures that you've done can it be done without these structures you've got your gp you've got your link worker or your social prescriber and then you've got i suppose hundreds of uh community activities yeah. that that they could uh, refer to H- has it been done in the past and what what's needed to make it happen yeah it, 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 is, it is being done as, as we speak um from the point of view of the social prescribing network ireland uh, we would like to see it being done more and better and become more widespread and to be more recognised as a bona fide intervention. And I think it's moving in that, in that direction. Uh, but it's, at the moment, it's piecemeal. And depending on what part of the country you, you, you live in, you might be able to access a social prescribing uh, project or service, uh, but you may not. So it's, it's, not, it's not widespread. It's moving in that direction. It's becoming more and more... Uh, popular, a lot of GPs, um, their suspicions at times have been sort of uh, assaged, and uh, I think more and more medics, more and more mental health workers, uh, more and more people within the health service uh, are beginning to see the full benefit of what community actually is, because social prescribing is really community development with bells on. I've I've been working with uh, as a as a community development manager since the early nineteen nineties, um, and we always sort of wondered what social prescribing actually was, but it, really all it is it's it's creating a mechanism between the uh, general practice or the primary care practice and the community and creating that that link of information and patient flow between the two. And what, what we've been told what, what we've been told and what some of the research proves is that the outcomes for patients are far better. Patients become f- far healthier from a well-being point of view and are more prone to going out and doing other things with their lives, re-engaging activities that, that help their uh, help their lives. You mentioned the social prescribing network there. Could you just tell me a little bit about how that works and what it does? Yeah, well, it's 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 still um, we're still in this early uh, formative stages, even though we've we've been going about two years. So it's 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 a group of people, north and south of the the, the border, who work together on an all Ireland basis, 
Um, there's a number of academics, a number of practitioners, community sector representatives. Uh, there's general practitioners on it. And the role of that group is to try and influence policy uh, or create um, policy as much as we possibly can in uh, in government because we don't have a policy either north or south. There's a policy in, in Britain, for instance, and the English Health Service has a policy towards social prescribing, as does Scotland. So we, we feel here that we need a policy. So that the, the network is, is in one hand, it's about trying to drive policy for and with politicians, but it's also trying to uh, work out how best to create uh, a full network of social prescribing projects throughout the island. I mean, the other side <clears throat> of this is that the community, community initiatives themselves are key. Um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the successes that you might have seen over the years? Social prescribing is community development with Belzo. Mm-hmm. And, and over the years, um, community development would have basically opened its doors to the walking well, as we, we describe them. Um, social prescribing is, is, is different in that it, it, it takes people who, or receives people who need the services more than want them more than those that, that simply want them. Um, so there's a, a lot of uh, anecdotal success stories and some stories actually that really go to the heart of what social prescribing is. There was a, there was a man in, in Castle Derg, country Tyrone, in the 70s, uh, who was referred by his GP to the local um, social prescribing project in, uh, in, in that area. And when he started talking to the social prescriber, he actually told her that he used to post himself a letter at Castle Derrick Post Office every week so that he would have a conversation with the postman as the postman delivered the letter to him. So for him, this was his way of, of creating his own sort of social life. He's an older man living alone, his family all the way. Um, and that would be not untypical of what you actually hear when you when the conversation takes place between the patient and the um, and the social prescriber, and that person then was was successfully referred on to um, I can't remember the, the actual uh, activity itself, but he was successfully referred on to to uh, an activity within his community and is now fully engaged in in, uh, in that. It's an incredible story, I have to say. It is. Um, I'm going to come to you, Margaret, now. And obviously your main area of work is in nutrition mm-hmm. and you've been involved in social prescribing as well. Just before we talk a little bit about that, um, can you tell me a little bit about why this focus on nutrition is just so important? I suppose for us over the years, trying to improve people's health through food, one of the challenges has always been people, the hard to reach people. So people, who, as, as Tony said, that need the help, but really for a whole variety of reasons can't, I suppose, can't engage and can't, and, and can't access that help. So I suppose for me, food and nutrition is so important because everybody eats. 
Uh, we know the, the impact of um, sitting around the table with people, that social interaction with people is so important for people's well-being. But for me as a dietitian, it's also good for their nutritional health. So for me, it's an ideal way of engaging with people. If you can get people sitting around a table, they'll talk not only about what they're eating, but they'll talk about their families or what they do every day or, you know, lots of different things. So um, for me, food is, that's what food does. It's special, <laughs> you know, it, it, it really brings people together um, and, and people that, are, that really need it, you know, we need to try and engage them even more to try and get them included in, in some of the activities that we have. And one of the projects, the healthy eating programs that you worked on is Healthy Food Made Easy. Just talking about that specifically, how has that helped yeah. communities beyond what you've already mentioned? Yeah, well, Healthy Food Made Easy is a six-week uh, community cooking program. So we started in the HSE probably about 20 years ago now, where we we, we identified that within um, disadvantaged communities, um, there was extra needs required to be able to support people around food and around cooking and around cooking skills. So we developed the program, which is based on the healthy eating guidelines, you know, the six, the kind of, the six kind of uh, weeks that we run the program for are based on different messages. Um, but I suppose from running the programme, we've also identified that a really good way of engaging with people in disadvantaged communities is with peer leaders. So we train up peers, local people who have an interest in, in becoming a peer leader in the community, you're looking at that community development approach, and they run the programme for us. So it's not the HSE or the health professional coming in to tell them what to do or to work with them. It's one of their own people who've experienced the same thing as they have, and that's been shown to be much more beneficial in helping people change behaviour. So um, it works really well. And I suppose, you know, from running the programme, being involved in the programme, working with the partnership organisations, you know, it's a bit like Tony said, it's hard to quantify the difference it makes. It's really hard to measure the difference it makes. But when you're sitting in a group of people who may not have engaged before and they're sharing food and they're talking and they're laughing and having, you know, having a good time around food, it's really powerful and it's really it just makes such a difference to people's lives and that's what social programming for me is all around uh, is all about is that making a difference to people's lives and improving the added bonus is we know it improves their mental health and well-being we know it improves their physical health so lots of benefits for it what kind of groups would have attended these programs a whole range of groups from uh, we run the programs in family resource centers for the groups of young mothers and young parents uh, we've run it in you know a lot of community centers would run the program because we work with our with our partners um, with partnership organizations um, we've also run it in within homeless services um, we've run it with where we've identified maybe some of those harder to reach groups like you know isolated older men we we did try and train up some peer leaders older men as peer leaders a number of years ago um, and you know worked quite well we haven't managed to keep it going so maybe now we'll re reinvigorate that one with we you know with the whole social prescribing network so a whole range you know addiction services mental health services uh, we run it within the HSC then we train up our own staff to be able to run that so where we have maybe an OT and occupational therapists work in mental health who work with groups um, we get them to deliver the program as part of their work so a, a whole range of programs and how at the moment are people referred in to the programs well in some areas we have a coordinator based in our partnership so they are obviously working in the community they know all the different groups and they can actually the groups contact them or, or they reach out to the groups and offer the program to them um, so for those preformed groups that's the way it works we're also running with the men's sheds at the minute as part of their health program so the six weeks healthy food made easy program has been delivered as part of that um, uh, but we also open it to uh, in some libraries we run it as a kind of an open where you can self-refer in so people can come and engage in the program um, so again you know I, I see that social prescribing could be a way of actually 
uh, linking people in through the, the, the social prescriber into these programs in a bit more of a structured way. Yeah. Because again, you know, we may be missing people who really would benefit or really would enjoy these types of programs as well. So it's trying to maximise um, getting people in as much, the right people in and supporting people uh, to, to come in the door and, and, and engage in the groups. And there's a whole series of overlaps and just listening to what you were saying there about um, about engaging people. We, we, we did a um, a, a region-wide series of um, chronic pain support groups. So we, we were encouraging uh, GPs and, and clinical psychologists with, with pain um, to refer patients into the uh, support groups. And so we got a whole range of, of individuals in, involved. And the, the outcomes from, from those were astounding. I mean, there was one, there was one woman... Uh, and I'll get to the point in a wee second, but there was a woman from the Lower Arbo in, in, in Belfast, she's only 50, and she hadn't been out of the house for five years because her pain was so was, was so uh, great a burden for her. So she became detached from her, her peers and her, and her social circles and, and, and so on. Um, and there's another woman in, in, in Derry who suffered from fibromyalgia. Uh, and now she is, as a result of her taking part in the first programme, she has been trained up to take the second program, which is now starting in September. And um, when we were when we did the program, uh, just finished there in March past, we had asked that the patients, um, what else would they like to see, as part of any new program going forward, and they said they would like to find out more about the relationship between pain and food, mm. um, which there is. Now it may not be entirely obvious, and it's may not be entirely profound either, but there, there are a number of issues connected uh, between uh, pain and, and, and food intake. For instance, there's the ability to shop mm. uh, is, is a big issue for people uh, living with pain. There's weight problems for, for people who people who are preoperative mm. and find difficulty. Um, they're preoperative for, for, say, orthopedic surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're having difficulty keeping their weight down because their pain doesn't allow them to exercise as much as it, as it, as it previously was. So there's a connection between all. So sometimes the overlaps in these things are, are really, really interesting and they're unexpected. Yes. That's an incredible outcome that the participant became the trainer. And, yeah. it's, and as you mm-hmm. said, it's very difficult to measure some of these things. As it well. is, and it's been one of our challenges with Healthy Food Made Easy where we have peer leaders who've you know, run the programme for us and then go on and do another course and then go on and then we lose them as a peer leader because they've become you know, back into full-time employment. Yeah. I mean, from our point but of that, view, but that's, that's a hugely that's a positive outcome. outcome. Huge. Yeah. Like we've one of our coordinators has gone on to become a psychotherapist because she loved helping people so much. She went back to college kept up her role as a coordinator mm. and now is, is and is using her information she knows about food to help people still throughout her work, you know, because of all those issues that you've talked about, mm. Tony, those links mm. between your mental health and well-being and how you eat. So not what you eat, but how you eat. So it's, it's you know, it is, it's all, it is all intertwined. Um, it's really, yeah. yeah, really interesting. And you mentioned when you spoke earlier, Margaret, that you'd seen food as a real connector of people through your uh, food programme that you had carried out with the young mums. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, we'd recognised, again, particularly in some of the lower-income areas where some of the public health nurses had told us that they were having challenges around you know, young mothers maybe starting their babies on solids too early. Um, we looked at ways that we could actually develop a program around that. So we adapted um, a weaning program called Baby Food Made Easy. 
we had been working with the public health nurses in primary care in the area and they had actually told us that um, they were finding it difficult to engage with young mothers in the area around weaning and putting their, starting the baby in solids. So the mothers were starting the babies in solids too early, which for, again isn't something that we wanted. So we adapted the a weaning programme. So we, we developed Baby Food Made Easy. So it's a two-hour programme that the public health nurse recruits or refers people in from, you know, when they see them at the baby checks um, uh, in primary care. Uh, and they are invited to come to a community centre or might be in the health centre uh, where they attend a two-hour session on, uh, on weaning. Uh, but also we show them how to cook uh, purees and how to cook the different food they need for their babies. So again, it's about, it is around budgeting, it's around getting good nutrition in, but also has created a whole support network for those young mothers who could be quite isolated in communities, young mothers often are. Um, so it has worked really well. And then it also links the public health nurse into those mothers again then for any problems that they have in the future. So again, a really good outcome, I suppose, a really good way of um, engaging with young mothers um, and getting good nutrition across and, and facts about good nutrition and, and, and support. So just to wrap up, what's next for social prescribing on the island of Ireland? I think we um, we need a policy, um, both north and south of the border. Um, um, and I would be very, very hopeful that we will have a policy that applies to both parts of the, the island, but what which also conjoins them in, 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 in different ways. And I think that policy should recognise the, the, the role of the health service, the role of the community sector, and the role of our sectors, including the, the wider public sector uh, in this as well. Uh, so I would be very optimistic that that will happen. I think that there is a sense that there's a growing movement throughout the island around social prescribing, which I think is a fantastic thing. And it, it will lead on to much uh, greater uh, benefit in, in the years to come. I suppose what, what, what I'd like to add to it is that I think social prescribing as a concept isn't known, even though a lot of us have been doing it for years. And I think that's what, you know, there's nearly a, a PR campaign to make people understand what it is. I think absolutely right. The framework, the policies need to be there. Uh, in terms of the HSE, we have um, self-management support coordinators who are doing that mapping of community services that are there. A lot of this is around making people aware of what's there in the first place but also then the key is that connection the key that won't help anybody if that person isn't supported and connected into it so i think while we have a lot of the information there we have a huge amount now under healthy ireland we have a huge array of supports available to people but the missing link is you know it's a bit like you know the lunchbox is no good to you a healthy lunchbox is no good for a kid if they don't eat it it's a bit like this we can have all the programs and, and initiatives that we, we we like but if the, the people who need it most aren't enabled to get in the door and support and get that support and um, so i think it's a bit of joining up the dots for me making people aware what social prescribing is but also making us all aware of what it is and how we can work together uh to 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 kind of build social prescribing into what we do i think we'll end on that very positive note it sounds like a great time for social prescribing to grow and develop on the island. That's all from this episode in our nutrition series. Thanks to my guests Tony Doherty of the Social Prescribing Network and Margaret O'Neill of the Health Service Executive for sharing their poignant stories and experiences. If you would like further information on social prescribing or any aspect of community work, do get in touch with us. Search Safe Food or look us up on social media you'll know us by our purple tick. You can link in with our Food Poverty Network and All Island Obesity Action Forum, or to keep up with our latest reports and research, check out LinkedIn. 
And remember, follow the Safe Food podcast series on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time then, goodbye.